Good morning. We're in Acts again today. We're in Acts chapter 16, which is on page 1111 in these Bibles. Before we get into that, I'd just like to pray. Um, you may have noticed it's been a pretty crazy week politically this week, and uh, Scripture commands us to pray for those in authority. So without mentioning the dreaded B word, let's pray for those in authority. And then pray for us as we turn to the Word of God together. Lord, thank you that you are the ultimate authority in the universe. And Lord, thank you that uh, the kind of political convulsions we know in our lifetimes, actually in the sweep of human history and certainly in the sweep of eternity, uh, kind of fade into irrelevance. Lord, we also know that these things right here, right now, can seem very relevant and very confusing. And so, Lord, do pray as your Word instructs us for those who have authority in our nation. Lord, we pray that you would somehow guide them, help them, lead them. Lord, thank you that you are the ultimate authority. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that those in positions of power who know you might lean into you rather than just leaning in their own strength. And I pray that those who don't know you might somehow still operate under your authority and your power. And I pray for us, Lord, as a community that we would, in times of uh, confusing political unfoldings, Lord, that we would keep our our feet solid on the rock that is the truth of Christ Jesus. We wouldn't be swayed. We wouldn't lose our, our grasp on, on what is most real, most lasting, most precious, which is you, King Jesus. And I pray you'd help us to see that again as we open up your word now. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Oh, you're coming to untangle me. Thank you so much, John. My personal assistant. Right. I need to look my best for the photos. I'd have got my hair cut if I'd known. Right, Jesus knows you, and Jesus can meet with you, and Jesus can work through you. That's really what this morning's message is about. Let's read Acts 16, verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. There's a lot of Inias in this. Let me try and point some of these things out. They should have a map coming up. There you go. A bit fuzzy. So, Paul, let's see if this little clicker works. Is the light going to shine? My little light. Oh, there it is. Right, so the apostles start from Antioch. They travel out. And uh, traveling around here, so Mysia here, Bithynia here, the region of Asia here. They passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia. Macedonia is over here in Greece. Well, it's very controversial for Greeks, Macedonians. Is Macedonia Greek? Let's not get into Greek politics. Saw a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. You can't, Samothrace is this island here. So they caught the the boat here at the end of the Mamara Sea. Uh, What we now call Istanbul is here. This is the Sea of Mamara. They caught the bus, the bus, the boat from (laughs) Troas. And went to the island of Samothrace, stopped overnight there and then got to Neapolis on the Greek coast. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, 
and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. This is Luke who's writing. That's the we. Now, throughout the book of Acts, what we see is God's divine power and human will operating together. One of the questions that Christians often ask, one of the questions I'm often asked as a pastor is, how do I get guidance? How can I make decisions about what to do in life? I've got this big thing facing me. How do I decide? And sometimes in the book of Acts, it's like the decision is kind of taken out of people's hands. God just intervenes. The day of Pentecost, of course, is a prime example where the Holy Spirit falls upon those first believers and they're just kind of compelled to go out into the streets and start talking about Jesus. There's no discussion. Shall we do this? What do you think? No, they just are kind of compelled by the word of the Lord. Other times we see it's much more about the people of God kind of pushing into things themselves, pushing at doors, seeing what opens, seeing what shuts. But those two things always come together so that the will of God's and the will of the and the actions of his people seem to correspond. Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce says this: Paul's missionary journeys display an extraordinary combination of strategic planning and keen sensitiveness to the guidance of the Spirit of God. It's a great way of summing it up. There's this. Strategic planning, which Paul and his companions engage in, but there's also incredible sensitivity. Their ears are wide open to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to them. And I'd suggest to us that if you're wanting to know how to make decisions in life, that's a great model. Plan, think, strategize, use your human wit and intelligence and knowledge, push on doors, and keep your ears wide open for what God might be saying to you because he might have some different plans for you and want to lead you in a slightly different way. And so what we see here at this part of the story is that Paul and his companions, and we know there are at least four of them at this time, there's Paul and there's Luke who's writing the story, and there's Silas, and there's Timothy. The four of them, and there may have been others, but we know that those four for sure, they're always pushing into mission. There's nothing passive about this little gang of disciples and they've been very effective in the mission of God in, back to the map, Angie, uh, they've been very efficient in the mission of God in the eastern Mediterranean regions. They've been in this area and they've started churches in all these different towns and uh, gone back to visit those, t- those towns a few years later. And now they want to push further. But there's this funny little phrase that says the Spirit of God kept them from entering into Asia. They were Somehow God kept them from going somewhere where they wanted to go. And we're not told how that happened. We're not told the mechanism. I imagine it was a prophetic word of some kind that God's revealed something to one of them or somebody in one of the churches and said, just don't believe that God wants you to go there at this time. There's this combination of strategic planning. Let's push. And then spirit sensitivity. Oh, actually, we don't feel that God does want us to go here. Let's try a different tack. Now, they keep on pushing, and Paul wants to push into this area, which is the region of Asia. Of course, now when we think about Asia, we think about a vast region which stretches from here in Turkey right across a huge part of the world. But in biblical terms, this is the the region of of Asia, and Paul wants to go there because he hasn't yet got there, hasn't started any churches there. Uh, But God has bigger plans for them than that. So it looks like a big step to go into Asia, but actually God's got a bigger step for them. 
And they suddenly understand what, what that is when there's this vision, a vision of a man from Macedonia who says, come and help us. And suddenly they know exactly what they're meant to do. Their strategic planning and their sensitivity to the Spirit of God come together, and Paul and his companions realize we're not meant to be here in Asia. We're meant to be over here in Europe. A new door opens. We're going to Greece. The door is open. And so they get this boat, not a bus, a boat, from the bottom of the Mara Sea, stop overnight in Samothrace, land the next morning in Neapolis, Greece, Europe. Now, up until this point, the gospel had been confined to Asia and with a little kind of dip into Africa as uh, the Ethiopian official had come to faith uh, a few years earlier. Up to now, there hadn't been any advance of the gospel in Europe. This is the next huge gospel step. And they come to this town called Philippi. Philippi was named after Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And it was located on a major Roman road, the Via Ignatia, a road that ran from uh, across Greece through to Asia through to what we now call Turkey. It was a major trade route, and Philippi was a really important outpost along the road, a strategic town in a strategic position. And it had been a place where there had been various battles, and the Romans, after one battle, had re-established it as a Roman colony. They'd uh, pretty much destroyed it, it got wiped out in a, in a battle, and then they re-established it as a Roman colony, which meant they put loads of Romans into that town and had it as a Roman town. And it was quite a small place, only 10 to 15,000 people, we think, and not a rich place, quite a tough, kind of working-class town, lots of poorer Romans, lots of ex-servicemen, those kind of people, resettled in Philippi, establishing a Roman colony. And it seems that there were hardly any, if any, Jews in Philippi. Often in the book of Acts, what we read is when the apostles go to a new town, the first thing they do is go to the synagogue and meet with Jews and start to talk to Jews about Jesus. That doesn't happen in this story. For a Jewish synagogue to be formed, you had to have 10 Jewish men. And so it seems that in Philippi, there weren't even 10 Jewish men, enough people to make a synagogue. So this looks like a tough place for mission. It's a tough little Roman colony without any people who are Jewish and so have that kind of cultural and, and spiritual background. It looks like a tough place to do business as apostles of Jesus Christ. But something amazing happens there, and we're introduced to three different characters, three very different characters, a businesswoman, a snake girl, and a jailer. Let's read about them. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. If there weren't enough Jews to form a synagogue... Those who were there would go and pray next to a river. And so Paul goes down to the river, seeing if there's any people who follow God to meet with. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira, which is back in, near Troas in uh, what we think of as Turkey. She was called Lydia, and she was a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, 
we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At, the moment, at that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, "'Don't harm yourself. We are all here!' The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, "'Sirs, what must I do to be saved?' They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Great story. Three different characters, a businesswoman, a snake girl, and a jailer. Let's think about each of them a little bit more. The first one, Lydia. Lydia from Thyatira, the modern city of Akhazar in Turkey. Now, this was a town that was famed for its production of purple dye. Up until about 100 or so years ago, before the invention of chemical dyes, dye from that city was still used in the production of carpets. So... For hundreds and hundreds of years, this was a place where purple, which was a very valuable color, because it's a difficult color to get, was uh, made and used in, in uh, the textile industry. Now, Lydia's come to Philippi, presumably on business, because she's a dealer in purple cloth. And she's a Gentile, she's non-Jew, but she's somehow come to worship God. And maybe that's because in her hometown there were some Jews, and she'd come to understand who the Jewish God was. And so she's meeting by the river with some other women. There's no synagogue because there aren't enough Jews in the town. And Paul and his companions go and talk to her and to her friends, and Lydia responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ. She is the first convert in the continent of Europe. We often talk about Europe being historically a Christian continent with all the good things and the negative things of that which we now see. There were no Christians in Europe until Lydia, next to a river in the town of Philippi, responded to the message that Paul and his friends shared with her. And she's immediately baptized, yes, gets in the river, gets baptized, and her household. Now, 
That's an important little phrase, household. In the culture of the time, that would have meant probably blood relations, would also have meant servants and employees. So this would have been a kind of a, a household, little crowd of people, 5, 10, 15, 20 people maybe, who were part of the household who depended upon Lydia as their kind of master and employer. And so there's this personal response which Lydia makes, but that also leads to a community response where a little crowd of people follow Lydia into faith in Christ. And those of us who are part of this church and love Jesus, this is what we're looking for. We're looking to help individuals see who Jesus is, but then we're looking for whole networks that they're connected to to respond as well. That's what we see in the Bible. That's what we see in the book of Acts. That's what we should be looking for as well. One person comes to faith, their family comes to faith. One person comes to faith, their network of friends comes to faith. We've got to have, we've got to have faith for that in our day. And we see God's graceness in terms of the first convert in Europe. I mean, that's get to heaven and you look for the person who's wearing that badge. I'm the first person on the continent of Europe who ever believed in Jesus. This is Lydia. And we see God's grace in this because she isn't perhaps who you might expect from the story. You'd probably expect a Jewish man to be the first person, the first convert. But it's a non-Jewish woman who is probably also a widow, which is why she's the head of this household. Looks like she hasn't got a husband around anymore. And I think Lydia is a great example of what a biblical model of womanhood looks like, that she... She's forging ahead in life. She's running a business. She's running a household. She's looking for God. She responds in faith to Jesus, and she brings her friends and family with her. What a great model. Next character is the snake girl. Now, there's a lot here that kind of jangles on our cultural nerve ends about this story, about this girl, this woman. Firstly, she is a slave, and that's something which we feel an immediate kick against because we're, we, we kind of think, we think of slavery and all its horrors, particularly shaped by the, uh, the African to American slave trade and all the horrors of that. And so we can think about the kind of experience this girl, this young woman had, and she was clearly somebody who was exploited in every way. She's an exploited woman. She's exploited by her owners and she, she has a spirit, and by this spirit, she can tell fortunes. And there's no explanation or apology given for this in terms of what does that mean that she has a spirit? What does that mean? No, it's just told straight. She's afflicted in some way by demonic forces, and they, in some way, give her ability to see things spiritually which normally people can't see. I and mean, she's a very different character from Lydia. Lydia independent businesswoman running a household, this woman a slave. Slave physically, psychologically, spiritually, oppressed, abused, manipulated, controlled, just in complete bondage, in chains, literally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, the whole lot. She's just tangled up in it. And she has this spirit. And actually, the the meaning here is not just she has a spirit, but she has a python spirit, a snake spirit. Now, in the Greek worldview of this time, there is a belief that the god Apollo spoke through pythonesses to give oracles, prophetic words. And the most famous of these pythonesses was 
the Pythian priestess at Delphi. You've probably heard of the, the oracle at Delphi. And this was an important part of, of Greek religion, that at this place called Delphi, there was a priestess who was possessed by a Python spirit. And through that Python spirit, given by the god Apollo, was able to issue oracles to tell fortunes, to tell the future. And so this girl in Philippi is a kind of a derivative of that, that she's got a snake spirit which fits into the whole kind of Greek worldview, religious worldview. And by that, she's able to tell people's fortunes. And by that, she earns her masters a bunch of money. Now, the spirits at work in her recognizes Paul and his companions for what they are. These men have come to tell you about how to get saved. And the thing about spiritual forces is, is that they are alert Back in the uh, accounts of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, it says that Jesus drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. The demons know who Jesus is, and they know who Jesus' people are. Now, imagine the dynamic. Paul and his companions are seeking to disciple Lydia and the other new converts. They're going down to the river again. That's where they're going to meet with the new believers. They're going to talk to them more about what it means to know Jesus and follow him. And of course, they're also looking to make more converts. They want more people to follow Jesus and know him. And this girl is following them around shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God. They're showing you the way to be saved. And you might think, well, in some ways, that's kind of quite welcome because... That's who they are, and that is what they're doing. But actually, it's very unwelcome advertising. It's just hugely distracting. I mean, you can imagine it here. If in here, we suddenly had somebody jump up and start shouting, he is a servant of the Most High God. He's telling you the way to be saved. Well, that would be true, but I wouldn't particularly appreciate it if you did that, and we'd kick you out. <laughs> so you can kind of imagine the scene. And also, this is a tough city. This is Philippi. This is a tough Roman colony. And you can imagine that Paul and his friends are aware they need to tread a little bit carefully because they know they could easily cause, stir up trouble, which means they could get into trouble. And so you can imagine the team meetings, kind of uh, when they're back at Lydia's house and sitting around the dinner table and saying, guys, what are we going to do about this slave girl? It's getting a bit much. What can we do about it? And it seems it takes quite a long time for them to do anything. It says this goes on for many days. And then, for whatever reason, the Apostle Paul just kind of hits a tipping point at which he uh, just has had enough. He's annoyed, as the Scripture says. And he suddenly just takes spiritual authority, turns around, points at the girl, and he speaks to the spirit, not to the girl. It's the spirit that's the problem, not her. And he says, go. Just sudden spiritual authority comes upon him. It's a, it's a bit like the accounts back in Acts chapter 3 where... Peter and John are going up to the temple, and there's a lame beggar who they must have seen hundreds of times, but for some reason at that moment, there's just a kind of a, a spiritual authority that comes, and Peter looks at him and says, get up and walk, and he's healed. Why does it happen? Why does it happen then? It doesn't tell us, but just that moment, there's a moment of spiritual authority, and the snake spirit not only recognizes this greater power, which Paul and Timothy and Silas uh, talking about, he, it submits to it as well. Now, there's all kinds of questions that we might have about this story. We're, we kind of think talking about demons is a bit weird, a bit spooky. But here's the point. There is power in the name 
of Jesus. And that's good news. It's good news for this girl who must have lived a life of torment. I think she was a slave. She was being abused, manipulated by her owners. She was tormented psychologically, emotionally. She just, her life was in a complete mess. And Paul, in a moment of authority, speaks to her, sets her free. Jesus meets with her. That's good news for her. But it's bad news for her owners because this means that suddenly the money supply has dried up. She's not telling fortunes anymore. And they're not very happy about that. And they drag Paul and Silas. Timothy and Luke seem to get away with it this time. They're not included in the riot. It's Paul and Silas who get it in the neck. And it looks like the crowd have really been looking for an opportunity to get at Paul. He's making some noise. This girl has been following around for days, shouting, This man is telling you about how to get saved. But people weren't very happy about these wandering Jews coming into town and stirring up trouble. And so they're attacked by the crowd, and it says they're severely flogged. That's, again, an interesting little phrase. It's not a mild flogging, not a little gentle whipping. No, it's a severe flogging with rods. They must have been in a complete physical mess. You think what a severe flogging with rods would have meant. If you're severely flogged, the mess you must be in. And yet, because of the hostility of the crowds, the jailer is told to take careful attention of them. And so he puts them not just in any old cell, he puts them in the inner cell, the most difficult place to escape from. And doesn't just put them in the cell, he puts their legs in stocks. They're bound by their feet in an inner cell. Must have been in complete mess, complete agony. And then they start praying and singing in the middle of the night. There's a lot we could say about that, but man, that's amazing. And then we're introduced to the jailer. And this is someone who was probably a former soldier. He was probably given this job of being jailer as a kind of retirement package. And it wouldn't have been a particularly demanding job, but it would have been a rough one. It would have treated people roughly. wouldn't have been much care. wouldn't have been much concern about rehabilitation of the offender. No, you lock people up, you kick them around, you flog them, you don't feed them much. It would have been a, a, a rough job. And also was a job which carried severe sanctions because not that hard, locking a bunch of flogged and beaten guys up and not looking after them. But if any of them escape Roman law, you're going to die. You pay for escapees with your life. And so this is a tough man. He's as blue collar as they come. He does things by the book. He's a servant of Rome. He's probably not the kind of guy who's either easily impressed or easily intimidated. He's been there. He's seen it all. He's served with the legions. He's working as a jailer. He's used to knocking people around and locking people up. And it takes an earthquake to get his attention. And he's a decisive man, obviously. When he thinks the prisoners have escaped... He doesn't wait to see what's happened, doesn't see if he can round them up, doesn't wait to see whether he'll get into trouble. He just draws his sword and he's, he's going to finish the job himself, kill himself there and then. And then when Paul says, hey, no, we're all here, almost as instantly, decisively, he turns in faith to Jesus. In a moment, he turns from all his history, which had nothing of God in it. In a moment, he turns from all of that, and embraces Christ Jesus. Wow. Now, he couldn't be more different from Lydia again. Totally different. Different culture, different class, different experience of life. 
But the same thing happens. He turns to Jesus and he brings all his household with him. The apostles speak to him and all those in his house, it says, and then they all get baptized. Wow. Now, these are three such different people. You've got the independent businesswoman, you've got the tormented slave girl, and you've got the jailer. But they all need Jesus. And Lydia's need isn't particularly obvious. She's, to be honest, she's a success story. She is making her own way in life. In a man's world, she is forging her own path. She's got a business. She's got a household to run. She's making life work. But she knows that's not enough. She knows she wants to know God. And so she's been exploring. She's the kind of person who's already coming along to the beliefs course every week because she knows she wants to know who God is. And then she meets Jesus by a river in conversation. I think it's, it's not a dramatic story at all. It's, she's already in that place where she's completely receptive to finding out who God is, and she gets talking to some people next to a river, which is a kind of a peaceful scene, and she just falls into belief. It's easy, nothing dramatic. The slave girl's story is very different. Her need is very obvious. She's utterly powerless. She would never set foot into the beliefs course because there's just too much else going on in her life. But she encounters a greater power, a power that is greater than the power of her human owners and greater than the power of the snake spirits that torment her. And she meets Jesus in a moment of spiritual authority, sets her free. The jailer isn't looking for God at all. He, he wouldn't come anywhere near the beliefs course. He wouldn't be interested. Lydia would be there already the slave girl would probably be outside kicking up a fuss, whooping and wailing outside the little red rooster about what's going on inside. The jailer wouldn't even think about going. He'd have absolutely no interest in being there. He's worked hard. He's not to be messed with. But God messes with him. And God messes with his jail and with his stocks and all the paraphernalia of his authority and power because he suddenly encounters someone who has more authority than Rome and its legions. He encounters Jesus Christ. Now, what's your story? Which of these three are you more like? Where has God met you? What about the people in your networks? What about the people in your family? What about the people in your friendship groups, your social networks? Maybe they look too successful, like Lydia. Why do they need Jesus? They've got life working. Maybe they look too needy, like the slave girl. Man, his life, her life, so complicated, so much going on, so many problems. It's just, just too needy for God to break in. Maybe they just look too hard. No interest at all in God. Just getting on with life. Tough skins. Now, this story should give us confidence. The book of Acts for us is a model of how the early church operated. It's a challenge to us because so often how the church operated seems to be at a a higher level of experience than we know, but it gives us this dream of what can God do in our day. If God could do this in Philippi, why not in Paul? Why not? Let's just finish it off. Verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No! 
Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and then they left. Now, this is a really nice little twist at the end of the story. The apostles are flogged, put in prison, Then the magistrates decide to let them go, decide it's easy just to kick them out of town. And Paul's response is like this, well, you know what? We're not actually just wandering Jewish troublemakers. We're citizens of Rome. And this is a Roman city. This is a Roman colony. And this is not how you are meant to treat Roman citizens. And it wasn't how they were meant to treat Roman citizens. There was meant to be due process. They should have been tried properly. They certainly shouldn't have been stripped and flogged. That's not what you did to Roman citizens. It's not what you did to Roman citizens who hadn't had a fair hearing. They shouldn't have been humiliated in the way that they were. And so you see, verse 21, the troublemakers say, these Jews are upsetting us Romans. And then verse 37, Paul turns around and says, actually, we're more Roman than you are. And that totally takes the wind from the sails of the authorities in the town. Now, I think there's real application for us today in this because how it can increasingly feel is that for those of us who love Jesus and seek to live in a way which honors him, it can increasingly feel that uh, the message that comes through from certain sections of the media and other parts of society is, are you God-botherers? Just don't bring your Jesus nonsense to the table anymore. Your views aren't welcome here. You, You bigots. You just don't really belong Your views are outdated. It's got nothing to do with what it is to live in modern Britain. And actually the reality is that we belong more than anyone. What our society needs to know more than anything is the goodness and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And we we belong here more than anybody. We are, we certainly should be model citizens. We should be more Roman than the Romans because of what God has done for us. And so we should have a confidence about our place, about we actually belong absolutely in 21st century Britain. We've got something to say, which is for the good of our culture, the good of our society. And you see that here, there's a a kind of a humble swagger about Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. You know, they've, they've been completely humiliated, they've been horrendously beaten, and they come out of that with a kind of a swagger, shoulders back, Chin up, we're the real Romans, you're the ones who've messed up here. And we see that in all that they do, the way that they kind of they push into territory, we're just going to keep going. Let's see what happens, we're just going to keep going. They rejoice when they're flogged. They're not intimidated, whether by human authority or by demonic forces. They just keep getting back and up, up, back up and cracking on with the job. There's a a real humility about them, but also a kind of a swagger about them. And again, for us, I think there's something here which is a model and a challenge and a dream that there is a model for us in terms of how we're to conduct ourselves as Christians now in the culture we live in. In Bournemouth and Paul today, we should conduct ourselves with real humility, but also with a swagger, because we know the truth about who Jesus is and what's happening in the world and how all things will end. That gives us the confidence it should do. 
There's a challenge in that because often we don't walk that way. We either kind of pretend we're not Christians when we're out in the world or we hide away and feel a bit embarrassed about things. But there's a dream here as well that we would be a community which learns to walk with a humble swagger. That we would walk with humility before people and before God. But we'd also walk with confidence because God in his grace has revealed truth to us. This story tells us that Jesus knows us. Jesus knows you. And Jesus can meet with you. And Jesus can work through you. If you don't yet know Jesus, Jesus can meet with you even this morning because Jesus knows you. And whether you're more like Lydia, successful, what's my need? If you're more like the slave girl, need is obvious but overwhelming. Or if you're more like the jailer, just thick-skinned and tough and tough and getting on with it yourself, Jesus can meet with you. It might be gentle, conversation by a stream. It might be dramatic, word of power, an earthquake. Jesus can meet with you. And for all of us, Jesus can work through us. Work through Paul, work through Silas, work through Timothy, work through Luke, work through Lydia, work through the slave girl, work through the jailer. Jesus can work through us. Let's believe that. Let's grasp that. Let's walk in that. Shoulders back, heads held high, humble, but swaggering. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Lord God, I do pray for us here today. I pray that we would be those who... For those of us who know you, have been encountered by you, whether that was more like Lydia or the slave girl or the jailer or some other story, Lord, thank you that you, for those of us who know you, have had this reality. Yes, we've met with Jesus. Jesus has met with us. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would put confidence in us that like the apostles, we would not be intimidated by our culture, by what's around us. There'd be a confidence, Lord, yeah, a swagger about us because we know that we're empowered by God and you have all authority. I pray that we do that in humility, Lord, though. We know that often where things have gone wrong, even in the continent of Europe, is where there hasn't been humility among those who say they own your name. And Lord, we do want to be humble as well as bold. I pray that you might keep us pushing, help us to push into new territory, just see what the Lord would do. And that you'd swing the doors open for us where you want them swung open. You'd call us into territory you want us to go into. And that we'd see fruit. And Lord, I ask for those here this morning who don't yet know you, that Jesus, in your mercy and your grace, that you would even today come near to them, just as you did with these very different characters in this story. Mm. That you might reveal your love and your mercy, your grace, your kindness. That there might be joy, as there was for that jailer might be transformation as there was for that slave girl might be something a bigger goal to live for as there was for Lydia I'll see you in your name King Jesus Amen let's worship him